One night, in long bygone times, man awoke and saw himself. He saw that he was naked under cosmos, homeless in his own body. All things dissolved before his testing thought, wonder above wonder, horror above horror, unfolded in his mind. Then woman too awoke and said it was time to go and slay. And he fetched his bow and arrow, a fruit of the marriage of spirit and hand, and went outside beneath the stars. But as the beasts arrived at their water holes where he expected them of habit, he felt no more the tigers bound in his blood, but a great psalm about the brotherhood of suffering between everything alive. That day he did not return with prey, and when they found him by the next new moon, he was sitting dead by the waterhole. Such reads the opening paragraph of Peter Vesselsopfe's essay, The Last Messiah. What man wakes up to see is the profound difference between his own kind and the world around him. This is no noble savage. Zapfus man has become aware of the carnage of biological life. He posits that in our struggle to make our lives meaningful, we fill our lives with surrogates that help us cope with nature's rejection and divert our attention from darker implications. Humans have this desire for cosmic justice and meaning, but there is no meaning or justice in nature. Therefore, humanity demands something back from nature that nature simply cannot return. As you can see, Zapfe is often thought of as a pessimist philosopher or even an outright nihilist, but I'm not sure I agree. There is a trickster strain to Zapfe's often humorous and cynical writings where his lack of illusions pave way for an odd celebration of life. In a famous passage, he explains why mountaineering meant so much to him. He says that mountaineering is meaningless, like life itself, and that's why its magic can never die. It seems to him that the insatisfaction of life is not overcome by mournful sulking, but joyous and playful action. A lot of these notions I find quite easy to reconcile with the philosophical approach to Norse mythology and religion. And indeed, when I first started studying Old Norse academically, I had some suspicion that I could still perform this task in devotion to the old gods, whom medieval texts insisted were both blind and deaf, and therefore useless as objects of worship. To me, that only made it easier for me to sympathize with Arnold Schwarzenegger's portrayal of Conan the Barbarian when he appeals to his god Krom, whom he admires, though he seldom listens. The mystery just got even greater. Today's guest might posit a solution to these cosmic and natural insatisfactions in the form of Krishna consciousness, with its emphasis on devotional action. By this method, it is alleged, man can one day wake up and never die again. My first experience with Kevin's work came in the form of one of the many videos from his YouTube channel, Leodnende Eld English, in which he performed an imaginary debate between an Anglo-Saxon heathen and an anti-heathen polemicist, which itself was a translation of a Hindu text dealing with the same subject matter. It's a unique and playful combination of devotional practice, comparative phenomenological study, and the furtherment of public Old English literacy. So naturally, I had to find out who the hell this guy was, and see what makes him tick. 
I'm going to give you a heads up warning before we start. The sound quality for this episode isn't the best, mostly because my settings weren't quite right in the application I used to record our conversation. And connection issues made some interesting tangents too difficult to follow to end up in the episode. But without further ado, Wesat Jihal, ich hatte Erik Sturesund, and you're listening to the Brute Noise podcast where we walk backwards into the future. Today we're discussing Dharma with Leonarda Eld English. Okay. Okay. Now I can hear. Okay. <laughs> good, good. Finally. Oh wow! It, it is such an honor to have this conversation, and and uh, I can't thank you enough. Truly. No. Well, the pleasure is all on my side. Really, it's nice to have a guest on for a change. I'm a big fan of your stuff. I mean, I actually found out about you for a while, and then it's only later that we got connected. Yeah. Like when I first discovered you, and I saw the video you did with. Uh, Conan on the Warrior in Old, in Old Norse. I thought, wow, that was epic. That was like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the Conan the Barbarian dub. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very impressive. I, I really enjoyed that. Like, oh, is he a YouTuber? Then I find out, oh, no, he's, he's, he's a more podcast sort of person. But yeah, cool stuff. And uh, So some people here in the audience will probably already have some idea about who you are uh, for your YouTube channel, Learning the Eld Inglisk. Is, is, did I pronounce that correctly? I'm not an old English philologist. So. Uh, well, I mean, sometimes I, can, I can't even pronounce my own name correctly, but it, it's Lernende uh, Ald English. And uh, this channel, uh, it, I mean, for those who don't know, who are not familiar with, with uh, what I do, is that I, I teach old English. Well, I, I don't only just teach it, but I, I interact with it. I have a... I, like I show old English in a very intimate way, you know, like I don't only just, you know, teach, you know, like how grammar, how, how the grammar works in old English, but I play with it. There's enough of the, 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 the great thing about old English, except because in relation to other old dramatic languages, that there's so much of, of, of its corpus out that you can play with it. You can make your own songs. You can write your own little stories. So there's a lot of room for creativity. And I, and I, and, and the thing is with the channel, because I've taken the time to learn it seriously, and I'll get into how that came about uh, uh, in a minute. It's just that, like, I really want to, like, really show that, you know, this stuff isn't impersonal. You can, we can make it personal. And it's just the problem is in academia, like, the, the attitude towards Old English is that, oh, well, we just learned Old English, so uh, we can just read Beowulf and know where English comes from. And, and that's that, you know, not go deeper. Whereas I like to plunge in and go deeper. What does this word mean? Because every word, every name you you know has a story behind it. Like how did this became that it, or, or what have you? And um, but just to go to my further uh, my earlier point about how did how did learn and how did learn and the old English start? Well, I've always known about old English ever since I was a teenager. This is my la- last year of high school or secondary school, if you will. Mm-hmm. I uh, I um, 
you know, I had an inkling of old English. Like I was a curious kid, a teenager. I was into like, I like, I'll do my homework and then I'll research like, where do, where do words come from? Where do uh, things we take for granted come from? And I got into old English because uh, I wanted to know where English came from. And then from there, I kind of, you know, being um, young at that time, my, you know, my interests would vary from th this thing to that thing. But then later in life, I realized, you know what, I want to turn this uh, dream of learning old English seriously. Because the, the, the idea was I want to be able to read Beowulf to, in the original to my future children. So I thought... Well, you know what? I I'm, I want to make this into a reality. So in the summer of 2014, uh, I decided to learn it seriously. I decided to go to databases like archive.org, Google Books, or what have you, to find grammar books and want to get my hands on and how to learn this. But thing is, I didn't have a background in linguistics, so I was like, "What does this all mean? What the what in the world is a is a is a accusative case and instrumental dative and, and all these linguistic terms. It's, this is all foreign to me at, at the time, but I, but I kept to it. I, I studied hard. I mean, I had, I did have some help learning it, but, uh, but then I thought to myself, you know what, I, I'm learning this really hard language. And I thought, why don't I become a source for everyone else? Because thing is, I had a gut feeling. I started my channel with a gut feeling that there are a lot of people in this world that want to know old English that, but just don't know where to go. And uh, academia has this terrible attitude. Why not have learned our English to make it fun, to make it interactive, to make it passionate, to make it glorious, if you will. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. I like this. <clears throat> but you, let me get this straight. You don't have any yeah. formal academic background in this? Like, well, I, I'm in the process now of I'm getting a, uh, you know, a, um, a bachelor's in uh, linguistics. Uh, linguistics. I mean, I, I'm... <laughs> You know, but uh, but I do. You know, I, I do. I mean, but prior to that, I I mean, I mean, well, I, yeah. I mean, well, the thing is, as far as my university education, I mean, I, I was actually studying history before, mm. and like halfway through my degree, I got into old English. I realized, you know what? Uh, uh, this is what I want to do. You know, I you know, like I I was I, I surprised myself because thing is. Uh, you know, language learning wasn't really an interest of mine as a, uh, when I was younger. But then when I got into old English, I realized, wow, this is not only just, you know, intellectually stimulating, but it's like connecting myself to my ancestors and whatnot. Um, it's fascinating. And But yeah, I, uh, I, I really went from nothing into, you know, learning this stuff. And I did have some help from uh, someone who did used to teach old English. So I, so I, I can't say... I've learned this completely on my own. That would be a, uh, a falsehood to say that. But I did. Uh, well, and, and then I had some help from Facebook groups here and there and whatnot. But oh, but then, uh, despite uh, the, those help I had I f from various places and people, I, I, I did a lot of it on my own and and uh, with the videos. I would practice with my videos and yeah. Uh, I, I'm not afraid to make a mistake, and if I do, I'll make it. I'll post a video again with the title uh, "Redone" or something to show the people that you know I'm I'm learning the stuff too. But but uh, but um, but I've been I've started the channel in I started the channel in the September 2014, and and ever since onward, I've been learning and and i'm still learning because you know i'm fascinated when i learn something new about old english you know because because it's such a deep topic not only that because it's connected with old norse and and by extension other germanic languages i mean it like uh, you know it's it's truly fascinating so so i hope that answers your question yeah no it's it's very impressive actually um uh, yeah. to hear this uh, because i think that the, uh 
you know, academia is full of, well, there are many brilliant people in academia, but, but not everybody in academia is brilliant. Uh, so, so it's very interesting to see that, you know, that a lot of this is really kind of autodidact. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I, I sort of expected that you came from, uh, you had more of an academic uh, grounding before, oh. like, uh, as me, for example, I, I didn't even know that Old Norse philology was a thing until I started my university education. Oh, wow. But I, but I had yeah, an interest, that, that, of course, in, in those sorts of subjects. So uh, do you have any like, specific memory about the first time you developed the consciousness about the past or when you felt, first felt curious about it? Uh, okay, by the past, you mean like... Like as far as like, uh, well, I mean, it's an open-ended question. But, I suppose you can assault yeah, yeah, it yeah, any yeah. way you like. Yeah, well, I mean, th- there is something important like th- th- to say. I mean, despite my lack of academic background and going straight into these uh, 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 deep end of these grammar books, if you will, there were times I thought to myself, "What, what in the world am I doing? I mean, this is such a hard thing." But I, t- I told myself, you know what? I'm going to learn this language. I don't, and I'm going to keep going and going. And, and the thing is, yeah, it may be hard now, but it won't be hard forever because eventually if you really want something, you really want to learn something, even no matter how hard it is, you'll get through, you know? I mean, yeah. I can imagine this could be the experience for uh, other people learning. Uh, it doesn't have to be an uh, old English. It could be any, uh, any uh, la- old language. I had, had a similar experience, of course, because uh, I studied old Norse under Eldar Heide, among other people. And uh, I remember some of the first examples he came up with <laughs> to illustrate old Norse to us. It was, uh, well, let's just say that the learning curve was very steep for me because you oh, know, yeah. the, the, the Norwegian language does not have a case system anymore, or it has only yeah. like residues of it. Yeah. Um, and so the whole concept of this was very alien to me, even though I, I knew a little bit of German actually. Uh, mm-hmm. But I didn't learn it from school. I learned it watching too much TV as a child. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's it's not a very noble way to learn a skill. But you know, I'll take it where I can. But uh, yeah, no, it's. What do you think that you had uh, any more like uh, an interest in history prior to to your discovery of old English, so to speak? Like, uh, were yeah. you interested? Uh, yeah. Were you curious about the past as a child? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Um... I mean, I was always a history buff when, when I was like, I was always into like medieval history. I was always into, uh, for a time into like Canadian history, British history and all that sort of stuff. And, but like, but it's only when, you know, like, like I was a curious person. I mean, like, I want to know where things came from, like things we take for granted, like why we do this, you know, uh, or, or what have you. So yeah, I've always had a had a passion i mean before i got into linguistics i or languages i, I was into history and then because the idea was when i was uh younger i i, I thought oh, i'll become a history teacher and whatnot and just teach canadian or british history or what have you and then i realized you know what old when it came to old english it made me feel alive i felt like i was really using my head and mm. you know so yeah and and from uh i mean old english alone i mean not only like intro got, uh, got me to understand england better that well you uh, 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 europe better uh, as far as history and and because not, 
when you get study a, a language, you're not only just getting to a language, you're, you're interacting with the culture, mm-hmm. with the mindset. And that's the beauty with an older language. Like, oh, okay, so if we know the language, we can know the mindset of how people thought back then. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, to the modern English speaker, the idea of having uh, grammatical gender is a completely foreign idea. How can yeah. it be that, that, the, in, in, that, the, that the word earth is feminine? Well, I mean, in old English, it's... Uh, well, which is a feminine noun, which um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's related to the uh, uh, age old idea that, you know, Mother Earth. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so, so, yeah. That's what they say, you know, that to know, uh, <coughs> sorry, uh, that to know a uh, language is to know a worldview. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I find that actually, uh, since uh, at some point I chose to produce content in, uh, in English, originally, Brute Norse or the predecessor to Brute Norse was in Norwegian. It was more of a question, you know, a sort of Q&A sort of thing. It was more like straight up educational. Now it's more like explorational, I suppose. Back then it was basically you could just send me a question and I would kind of answer it, you know, from a sort of source critical point of view. But then I started doing more of my own conjectural stuff. You know, I started producing content in English. And I immediately realized that there are certain things that you can do in Norwegian that you cannot do in the English language and vice versa. And I, especially with my kind of like, you know, cause I'm trying to write a book mm-hmm. and I realized that the content, what I'm trying to say in this book is much easier to say in Norwegian because that, that's my mother tongue, you know, you know, the, yeah, no, no, I absolutely guess what you're saying. I think I agree, you know, without, without uh, going full on Sapir Wharf, uh, on it there is there's definitely something to this yeah definitely and uh, it's just you know it's a very deep rabbit hole so to speak and and it's just it's good to you know not only you know you interact with the culture i mean it's 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 good for the mind it's kind of like um another way of looking at old english is kind of like a linguistic algebra because yeah. especially with something like with the case system um you know it, it like the fact that it's inflected so no matter how the words are placed in a sentence uh, you know like long as the endings agree with each other it'll make sense regardless you know mm-hmm. but to a but to a modern speaker of english that wouldn't really make much sense you know it just do you have any like um, i don't know favorite etymologies or something along those lines uh well i mean i i you know i i, I mean in relation with english i mean some things surprise me like what is related to what like for example with sanskrit you know, and like uh, mm-hmm. the cognates between that and, and old English, that like what re- what got me into the Dharma. Uh, well, one of the, one of the things that really got me into Dharma um, by Dharma uh, for your listeners is spelled D H A R M A. Dharma. Anyway, so like I was looking up the what would be the old English cognate for um, for uh, Atman, which is basically, I mean, it's it, it Sanskrit loosely translated means soul or whatnot. Uh, eternal spark of consciousness, if you will. And I thought, what was, what was the, uh, linguistically, uh, etymologically, what, what was the cognate? And it turned out to be Adam or Adam. And that meant breath. And, and the same thing with um, uh, it, it, with Atman in Sanskrit. It, it, in some contexts, it means breath as well. Further, uh, cognate to modern-day German Atom. Then I thought, wow, okay, these things are connected. I mean, then that was one of the, one of the turning points. I thought, yeah, Sanatana Dharma, AKA Hinduism is pretty much related with uh, uh, Indo-European, like um, European uh, spirituality. So mm-hmm. I thought that was like, wow, okay, cool. 
Yeah, because uh, that is that is also one of the the key elements of your content. It's not only that you focus on old English uh, literacy and bringing that out into the masses, but you also have this uh, kind of dharmic uh, bhakti aspect uh, to it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because thing is, you know, from what I know of dharma, dharma says that life does have meaning. You know, I could have a very nihilistic approach to old English. This is what it is, you know, da 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 da, and not make it. You know, I rather have my content have value, have substance. You can actually learn something. You know that oh, I you know I listened to this video. Now I'm wiser than I was before. I mean, I, like I really want to give something because because you know YouTube has so much bubblegum, so to speak. You know, like it's mm. it sounds great and whatnot, but it has no nutrition. You know what? I'm I, like I, I want to make my content. You know that has meaning, and uh, and and as a you know, I, I consider myself a devotee of of uh, Sri Bhagavan Krishna myself, and and you know, and, and an Anglo-Saxon pagan as well. I mean, I I do want to provide. I, I do want to like you know. I mean, apart from old English, I do study uh, paganism, like like the looking at historical sources and what have you. And the fact that I know old English, I can read what they actually say. And so so knowing. Um, an old language does help, you know, to to really uh, get deeper uh, to what texts are actually saying. At the same time, to to better understand a period better is to is to know the language of the period, so you get a better idea at how people think. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you have these uh, historians who work with uh, Scandinavian medieval history who don't know the language. That absolutely perplexes me. You know. Everything you do is reading translations and yeah. secondary sources. It's not a good way to work, I think. Plain and simple. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you 100% because uh, a translation, uh, people need to bear in mind, is just one person's opinion. And the thing is with translations, the pro- especially, this is true for Old Norse as well, uh, that some translations, they're not, I mean, they, sometimes they're not literal, they're more poetic. Like, so, it's, so it's nicer for the reader to enjoy or, and then you have others where they're this very literal is, and it just, okay, okay, fine. That's like, okay. I don't know. I rather the ugly literal stuff. So like, okay, so that's the context, but like, but I mean, it, it really depends on what, what, what are the authors or should I say the translator's motivation? You know? Yeah. Cause, yeah. There, there's that aspect. I mean, cause certain, you know, words within themselves have their own connotations and whatnot. And okay, that's, that's getting deeper, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's so many, terms that are so difficult to, to translate. There are so many English translations of Old Norse poetry that are so lofty in their language, but Eddic poetry is very uh, quotidian. It's very daily speech sort of stuff, uh, some of the time at least. Uh, so I always thought it's strange to read these very embellished uh, English translations with end rhymes and that sort of stuff. So like, like as if the audience doesn't realize uh, that it's a, uh, that it's a poem unless there's an end rhyme in it, you know, end rhymes that don't yeah. exist traditionally in, in Norse poetry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you, uh, you, you know, same thing to some degree with old English, you, you have like alliteration where like each, uh, you know, you would have the stanza, but like on the line, you would have like words that, that would start with the same letter, but there is one old English text that I've yet to do a video on that does, uh, it's called the, well, it's, well, it's called the rhyming poem, but like it's spelled with a, instead of, there's no H and there's no Y, it's just like R-I-M-I-N-G uh, mm. poem. And like it, it, it has rhymes, well not, but rhyming in English came much later. That's, that's something you'd see in like middle English or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and so um to return back to kind of the um yeah. the the religious aspect of your content okay. uh it's very refreshing to see actually because i think that there are so many uh academics and scholars who are into old norse old english and this sort of stuff that yeah. are kind of in the closet about their own uh, spiritual uh, beliefs like like many academics far you know far beyond the numbers of those who identify themselves as pagans many of them have some sort of attraction at least to the worldview or they're very interested and fascinated by the literary content but there are quite a few pagan academics out there who are very unsure about whether or not they can actually be honest about that uh, whether at work or in the content they produce or that sort of thing so it's very refreshing to see somebody who's absolutely unapologetic uh, about uh, how they see things you know i remember when i was yeah. When I was doing my my bachelor's, mm-hmm. I kind of approached uh, Old Norse uh, paganism a little naively, I think. Yeah. So it was a very early development of, of, towards the worldview that I have today. But I think that I approached it almost with this idea that studying Old Norse is kind of like being a monk, you know, that there's an, there is an ascetic sort of devotion uh, to this yeah. i think that i was correct in that you know i was just oh. kind of like the the goal posts were kind of in a in the wrong place i think yeah well the the thing is um uh, i mean this is such a big topic in itself it's just uh, i need to collect myself uh the thing is yeah i mean that's an example of 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 what i would call uh well what people in in the i don't know where it like in dharmic circles, we'll call it like do, uh, devotional service. It's it's not it's not how much you do. It's like how sincere are you? Are you really doing this because you want to serve the the divine or or this particular demigod, this this deity, or are you doing it because of your own ego? Oh, look at me! I'm so devotional. When really you're serving the ego and not, you know, I'm not being um, uh, humble. You know, because that, well, that's what I'm trying to portray. You know, like, because most people, then again, at the same time, too, most people don't have no idea. You know, okay, we're pagan now. What does that mean? What do we do? The problem is, as well, is that because we live in such an internet information age, you get so many people having this idea, that idea. No, do this. Do No, do that. You know, it's really hard. Uh, but, I mean, as for myself, I draw a lot of inspiration from Sanatana Dharma, a.k.a. Hinduism. And for those, uh, uh, just to go back, uh, I need to say this for your listeners, that's Sanatana Dharma, it's it Sanskrit, that literally means eternal natural law. I did make a video on this, and it's called In Search of Sanatana Dharma in Old English. And on my second channel called Learning Old Germanic Languages, there's a video I did called In Search of Sanatana Dharma in Old Germanic Languages. The word for Dharma in Old English, that, yeah, because the word for religion, I, I, I tried looking up, there's no word for religion as we understand it today. I mean, mm-hmm. they did have was a word called au fastness and uh and where the first part is au which means okay it can mean a number of things it could mean forever uh it could mean uh um and i think the gothic co- uh, cognate is aus uh old norse a or mm-hmm. a or a um but it means forever but like i don't think the 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 norse I couldn't find a norse word like that but that meant law but anyway but in old english you have a that that means well, it means a number of things, but it, it, like it means law, it means eternity. The same thing with the uh, old High German Ewa and old Dutch Ewa. 
and uh, and old Saxon eu and eu, you uh, if you will, and the, the, these words they all mean <laughs> you have you have this consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, Majority-wise, so that makes of these words they, they of meaning law and eternity, and it's just the thing is with Sanatana Dharma. I need to stress this that this is not an Indian concept. I mean, by eternal natural law, like it's a universal concept. Uh, yet it manifests in different ways. I mean, uh, give you a, a cognate to Dharma um, uh, in Lithuanian, you have Dharna. You know, I mean, which mm-hmm. more or less means the same thing. But uh, like when I say universal, I mean universal as in one plus one equals two, no matter where you are in the world, water is wet, fire is hot. You know, these things are, they are in the past, they're, they're, they're now and forever, hence eternity. True in the past, true now and true in the future. So um, I know I've said so many things and, 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 and I mean, as far as um, Dharma is concerned. And so, so the old English word that I uh, found with ow or or ow or, or I mean there's many variants so, you know depending how you decline the uh, word it could be weak or strong anyway uh, ow or ow uh, and ow fastness and the fastness in some contexts it could mean quick but it, but it means like like something firm something mm-hmm. uh, uh, similar to the to the etymology of dharma meaning uh, if you go back to its uh, proto Indo-European root thing that upholds and whatnot mm. and uh, Norwegian fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah, for actually, the word "firm" itself is Latin "firmus." It, that's cognate to Dharma, mm-hmm. uh, I think. But but I don't think the word "fast" itself. But yeah, fa- yeah. So to give you a, cont- uh, a modern English example, be how someone fastens their buttons, whatever, like puts them together, makes them firm. That's so that, so the idea of fastness, firmness to what to the law, and with this word "awa," uh, if you go really far back to its uh, Proto-Indo-European roots. I found out it, it meant life. It meant um, uh, Lebenskraft in German. I mean, I, so there is that natural connotation there. So like, oh, wow, this is, you know, like this is the closest word I can find in old English that is a candidate to mean Dharma. So, uh, okay. At some point, I did study quite a bit of, uh, of religious history and religious science at the university because I, <laughs> I have sort of this uh, jack-of-all-trades uh, humanistic mm-hmm. education skewed towards antiquarianism and also religion, I suppose. No. Uh, so one of my favorite subjects there was, of course, Eastern religions. I was very fascinated by Shinto and Hinduism. Yeah. Um, and I had an amazing, um, an amazing uh, lecturer whom I always kind of suspected that he was kind of a closeted Hindu or something along those lines. I think that I heard like a rumor that he was a Catholic, which surprised me greatly. Uh, but he would talk so passionately about Hinduism. Well, he taught all sorts of different Eastern religions generally, like in the, in the, from the Indian subcontinent. Right. But uh, his understanding of, uh, of Hinduism seemed to be particularly impassioned. And so we would, you know, discuss uh, various concepts like, uh, you know, Prakriti or whatever, uh, however it's pronounced, this idea, I think, isn't this the idea that um, the transfer of energy, from one thing, you know, there's no, no such thing as free lunch. This whole universe is based on this, that something takes something from something else, you know, and this, the, there's a nourishment that just pervades the universe. Uh, 
kind of constantly at the expense of something else, but it has this like this is this contained system. People have these new age connotations about this stuff, you yeah, know. And yeah. I, and I don't I don't I don't want to go in that direction at all. Oh, oh, oh no, <laughs> but, no, no, but uh, but um, Norse religion, for example, has an eschatology, which is kind of odd because we don't have that much of a developed eschatology in many other uh, pagan European religions. The world kind of inevitably goes towards Ragnarok in a way, at least as you know how it's being presented in the in the Eddas. Anyway, if the gods totally prevail in uh, in the pursuits that they do, you know, for the most part, you know, they they are victorious. But the end of the world will come about by the by the victory of the gods in part, you know. And in in Hinduism, you have the concept of the yugas, for example, you know that uh, that yeah. the world yeah. has this great cycle that it moves. It has to move in this direction because that's how the world is, basically. I think the Hindu concept of the yugas did not exist in Indo-European times, in Proto-Indo-European times. Oh, no. I, mean, but, be, uh, be, yeah, I mean, I'm not too sure about that. But I mean, I mean, I, what I mean is that, like, I don't know enough to comment on that. I mean, no, but but what I'm I'm trying to say is that these developments are totally independent of each other, seemingly, but they come from some sort of like philosophical foundation that allowed both of them to kind of germinate there's a sort of like uh, philosophical pregnancy in the indo-european worldviews that allows for these sorts of parallel de- developments you know th- there is a lot of similarities uh and between let's say germanic and and vedic because you know i mean for example if you read the uh rig veda mm-hmm. i mean you, you know, the things that, that it says in it like uh, you know, may we be reborn and do great deeds again. You know, what is this? You know, am I reading the the poetic Edda or something? That sounds like something <laughs> yeah. you hear from the Germanic world. But yeah, I mean, this, so you you see some um, should I, uh, yeah say yeah <clears throat> yeah so you, so you so there are uh, Indo-European themes that you'd see in Vedic and you'd see in uh, you know and Germanic and yeah having so there is definitely a common source that that these two, uh, you know, cultures emerged from. Um, yeah. You know, but- I think that many people, uh, you know, the, the obvious there is of course the pantheon, you know, you have uh, Thor versus Indra, who are yeah. both very similar to each other. But I think that it's often less explored how these uh, religions have in common these assumptions about how the world works on, on more like almost a scientific level. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, what I can say is that, I mean, I, I like, what, what little can I say about about this particular? It's just that, I mean, like, I, I do know that uh, with the Celtic, uh, with the Slavic, you know, with the Germanic and with the Vedic, that the this, like, when something dies, uh, you know, a person or whatever, uh, it, it is, it is to be come back again. Like, the idea would be. Yes, uh, we are currently in this body, but if you remove all facets of identity, what is that I? Whereas the Vedic person would say that I is Atman, eternal spark of consciousness. To explain Atman, um, I'll use the example that Acharya uses. That uh, Imagine a pearl necklace, and each pearl represents a life. It doesn't matter how many pearls uh, the necklace has, what we are, what every each person is is the thread that's mm. ever going so um 
I mean, the Bhagavad Gita goes into, I think it's chapter three that goes into uh, detail about this. Yeah, for, the, for those of your listeners who don't know, the, the Bhagavad Gita is a uh, Indian text, um, part of a larger epic called the Mahabharata. Yeah, Mahabharata. Uh, and uh, there's a big war going on, and you have this guy named Arjuna, Archer, and he's in his battle, and, and uh, the, the people he has to fight are his friends, his family, or what have you. And, and, and it's basically a conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, and, and, and then they talk about this, this dilemma. So I, just to give some background and context to uh, where people can read about this idea of like the, the soul and being reborn again and how um, Krishna would talk about it. Yeah. I read the Bhagavad Gita when I was maybe 21 years old or something like that. Um, it had a very strong impact on me just immediately. I've, oh, it yeah. has ever since been a text that I kind of return to if I feel kind of, if I feel kind of defeated or sad or something like that. I found it yeah. to be like a, a very accessible book that you can just open up, pick out any page in the entire book and you will see something uplifting. Of course. There'll be I mean, some sort of, um, the wisdom of the book really cuts through uh, whatever like bothers me at any given point, it seems. I mean, further, uh, the, the, for those uh, who are linguistic oriented listening, uh, it literally means a song of the Lord. The way to think of the Gita is kind of like um, how skulls would sing about a hero. Well, it's the same thing. It's just about the, the song of Krishna. And uh, in fact, on YouTube, you can find the Gita sung which is pretty nice to listen to. But yeah, yeah, the thing is about the Gita that, uh, that it's very human. You know, I mean, listeners might, might disagree with me on this and they're, they're more than welcome to. Uh, should Christianity never happen to, 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 uh, to the Germanic peoples? I mean, part of me thinks that they would have came to the same conclusions as, uh, I mean, well, to some degree, because it's just it, like, it's so human. I mean, we all experience, mm. uh, you know, uh, distress and uh, anger and fear and anxiety and lust. And how do we overcome these things? I mean, I guess uh, different cultures, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I find that there's something very human about it. Like, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that, um, you know, I like to entertain myself with this idea that, um, yeah. that uh, Scandinavia had never been Christianized. But I don't think that Scandinavia you know, shouldn't have been Christianized. I think that in some regards, it's a huge loss that yes. the pre-Christian worldview was not allowed to develop itself to survive the Middle Ages and the Industrial Revolution or whatever, you know? I wonder what we would have had. Like, would it have been something like, like Shintoism in Japan or, or yeah. would it adopt Christianity alongside it so that we would have like this syncretic thing going on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you see some of, like... A little bit of that in the folklore, actually. You have elements of the of the so-called low mythology, uh, yeah, cooperating with the Christian worldview in a way that is very interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. The thing is, going back to like the old English. I mean, the uh, the thing is to understand about old English, or you could say about Norse uh, or old Germanic literature, is that the the way they would describe Christian ideas would be through a pagan vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. The disciples of Jesus would be like the Christ things. Uh, they, uh, Jesus himself would be called, you see this in a lot in old English literature, uh, the Drichten. I think yeah. that evolved later into, into Dreit. And, well, the thing is about history, I gotta, I mean, history is great, but, but try to limit one's spirituality just to imitate, oh, how well we can imitate the past. 
mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you got to think to yourself, why, why, why am I getting into this to begin with? Am I trying to bind myself? Am I trying to enslave myself to, to the past? No, we, yeah. we, you know, we're on. So, well, I mean, I, I like to use the Indo-European chariot analogy that we're still riding. We're still in, in this chapter now, you know, why repeat an old chapter from before? before? I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah. we can, uh, we can have inspiration whatnot but like but still move forward i mean even if it did survive it, it would change anyway like the, the people how people practice now it's not the, uh, i mean be, i would imagine it'd be similar but like it wouldn't be the same as it was five thousand years ago and you get these pagans or, or heathens if you will that focus so much on the history where they get they develop this 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 black pilling uh, to use a modernism you know this this, this hatred or I shouldn't say that's a strong word, but uh, you have this all this animosity and anger. Oh, those Christians and this this historical grievance, and, and it's just it's unhealthy. You see that in like in the uh, in some of the Scandinavian uh, true scene, where oh, they yeah. refuse to refer to like Olaf, you know, Saint Olaf as Olaf the Holy, which is like traditionally what he's been called. They call him like. Uh, mm-hmm. He's, he's called like Olaf uh, the Great or like the Olaf the, the could could be the large I suppose the Digri, uh, Digri which should, might you know the, should mean the Great or something like that but the, but there's the connotation perhaps of, of of physical largeness and so they call him Fat Olaf they use this reverent language about this guy and I don't understand exactly why they they harbor this. Uh, condescending tone towards medieval christianity yeah well, like this like this cosmic enemy almost that they they, they feel they have to uh, dislike or that they need to have some sort of like negative opinion about yeah well the thing is you know the go deeper about this i mean you know ha- you know like this is no different than my viewers you know some of them you know, have this like hatred towards like Normans, the idea, oh, those Normans, how dare they invade England? I mean, that happens. Move on. You know, yeah. yes, Christianity happened, but move on. I mean, we still have Sanatana Dharma. We, you know, we can, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting imitate them like uh, chapter and verse, but I'm, but we can still draw inspiration at least, yeah. you know, what would Dharma look like in an Anglo-Saxon expression? How would it look like in a Norse expression? That That's, mm-hmm. I would think a positive way to look at it because, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm into Anglo-Saxon paganism, but at the same time, I listen to uh, uh, devotional Vedic uh, or Indian, if you will, devotional music every day because like, I, I really encourage anyone to listening, you know, take the time to watch, um, I don't know, uh, type in YouTube and RT, uh, 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 that's spelled double uh, A-R-T-I, I think, R-T, or I think it's double I know it's two A's and then an R. Then anyway, uh, you, you'll find it eventually. And like you see the ritual going on of like um, you know people giving devotion to an idol and whatnot. And you, you look at these people give devotion to like let's say Vishnu or or Lakshmi or Ganesh or what have you. And and I'm just thinking and, and watching watching these people you know give their uh, obeisances and, and and devotion. I'm thinking our ancestors, our Germanic ancestors, would have had something similar, mm-hmm. guaranteed. Absolutely. I'm very sympathetic to your point of view that, you know, the, the history just happened, you know, uh, yeah. and, uh, and how we view history is, uh, you know, it has also, it affects the past kind of retrospectively. I, I think yes. if, if we're going to draw this into more like a futuristic vein, but when I first started getting into Old Norse mythology and Old Norse pre-Christian 
you know, indigenous religion. I also had this, you know, I fell into this trap of being very disinterested in medieval Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I felt that as I matured and learned more about it, I started to appreciate uh, the reading of paganism uh, as kind of like, uh, in a way that was accultured by the historical events as they happened, and also mm-hmm. how paganism played in and had this strange interplay with, with Christianity in a way, oh, yeah. you know, kind of how we're, we're stuck with what we have right now, you know, where we are, we're still talking about this, uh, you know, the conversation is still going on. It's not as if, you know, the, yeah. uh, we don't have any texts at all, or we don't recall the names of the deities or something like that, as I'm sure the yeah, case yeah. is with many different, you know, other religions around the world that, that were superseded by something, something else that still exists. Yeah. Many of these uh, lost their stories they lost their texts oh, yeah. they lost yeah. the names of of the deities themselves you know so at least like the the germanic gods are kind of suspended in their existence yeah. you know they, they yeah. still have yeah to, to go further on that yeah i mean we still have uh greco-roman sources i mean i really for any pagan listening uh i would really recommend uh, uh looking up on on i think it's on wiki source it, it's called uh salus uh it's a it's it's a text by Salust S A L L U S T Salust and it's like on the gods and in the world and it's basically written by a a, a pagan talking about paganism uh, mm. like how to like uh, um, how to understand it and, and that's one text that we can look to uh, for inspiration or we can look at something called Vedanta and the word uh, uh, it's Sanskrit and the word Ved is cognate to English wit and Anta, if, I, if my memory serves me correct, that it means end of. So it's like Vedantic, Vedic philosophy, if I have that correct. But yeah, the thing is, the deeper thing I wanted to say is that you have people, yeah, they, they're so frustrated with the past and whatnot. But the thing is, I mean, yes, that happened. But I'm just going to say a quote from what I've learned from the Yoga Sutras. Yoga Sutras were written by a philosopher named Patanjali. And one of the interesting things he says in it, is something along the lines of um, that sorrow is the fight against divine will, uh, combat with divine will uh, uh, ceases, sorrow ceases. So it's kind of like going back to fate. You know, mm-hmm. you know yes, these things would have happened anyway. It's kind of like, okay, well, this was fate. I don't know. I would advocate people to, uh, to get into to paganism with kind of the, the attitude of, of, of the glass being half full. Okay, so what do, what does exist? Okay, we can have inspiration from that uh, place, from this place. Okay, we got Vedanta, we got uh, Salus and his uh, on the gods and the world. So we, we do have something. It's not like we don't have anything. I mean, yeah, we have the poetic edda and prose edda. So there is stuff out there. And my, my friend, um, History with Hilbert, uh, he told me he told me a quote. Well, he said he said this to me. And I call that the past is much closer than we think. I'm pretty sure there there are texts out there that we just haven't found yet. You know, I, I just can't wait until we find that one coffin or one uh, burial mound or whatever we open up. Oh, well, we look at that. You know, we have more inscriptions, more. Uh, and, but uh, but that's just me dreaming. That's you know, so. yeah. But but those things really do happen. Yeah. There are numerous uh, archaeological finds that are like those more than we can hope for things. Yeah. Just look at uh, the Oseberg burial, for instance. Totally yeah. insane. Nobody could ever hope to find something like that. Yeah. And it's totally possible that something else just like it could exist out there. Oh, like, yeah. uh, like, I don't know. Um, 
me and Axel were always fantasizing about, you know, uh, like a Vendel era helmet from Norway, for instance. We have lots of little pieces. We know they had them. We've got remains of pressed black foils, but we don't have the actual intact helmet. Could still be out there in the soil somewhere. You yeah, know, yeah, like a totally yeah. material example, <laughs> pulling our lofty discussion down to, to the earth, so to speak. Uh, but it's, yeah. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you never know. Not, not, only, not only that, uh, you know, you, you hear about these, these uh, antiquarian people who, who, uh, who, I don't know how to word this, but like you, there are people out there that like buy historical things. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know if it's black market or not, but you have people that collect these sort of things. Yeah. Private and, collectors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, you know, you know, I don't know. Some, you know, someone is so kind to disclose their collection. Oh, I have this. I don't know what it is, but maybe these uh, archeologists may have an interest in this. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm always, uh, I'm always with a smile on my face about this stuff. And yeah. So, um, yeah. So for those of you who are, you know, very spiritual, spiritually oriented, yeah, uh, I would definitely look to Sanatana Dharma for, for, uh, for inspiration and that, and that Greco-Roman text, uh, Sallust. So that would be my advice. Yeah, speaking about the half-full glass and all of that stuff, that was always something that kind of stuck with me back when I was younger and maybe of a more impressionable age. Yeah. When I was also kind of starting to get into this, you know, suspicion where I felt that modernity was you know all the, this this big like demiurgical force that was just like cheesing off uh, our worldly existence in a way you know it's just making everything miserable uh before i kind of started dealing just simply dealing with it i think it's kind of ironic because i actually had to go live in the forest before i actually kind of softened up my views a little bit because I, when i was living in the city uh as a student Mm-hmm. I had all sorts of opinions about like what was a healthy lifestyle and what was a good attitude of this and that. I'm very judgmental in, in, in every aspect, really. I got kind of, you know, interested in all of this, you know, traditionalism stuff uh, yeah. in passing. But I was never really drawn fully into it as some people are. I could never really be too swayed by, you know, the texts of like Evola and, and that sort of thing. Also because I felt that they were oddly artificial in how they treated the material. They didn't have the hands-on, back-to-the-earth uh, approach that I was looking for. And I always felt that they were uh, all too pessimistic. Mm. You know, that they were like, yeah, they're focusing on all these supposed traditions and all of the things that have, you know, disappeared and vanished and how everything is going to hell. But I got the gist that even when I was reading like antiquarian, like, like folklore journals, Mm-hmm. Even people living in the 1920s were talking about how everything was lost, you know, uh, how previous generations of scholars didn't know what they had. And mm-hmm. still, you know, in the 1920s, people were doing things that were totally crazy in terms of like, like practicing living folklore, sleeping on the floors during, you know, the, the, the Yule holiday so that their ancestors could, could have a, a night of sound sleep and that sort of thing, leaving food out yeah. for, the, for ancestral spirits. All that shit was still going on. Yeah. That really woke me up and thought that there's no nefarious force or conspiracy keeping me from like planting potatoes and doing something positive and yeah. looking forward, you know, that's like the Brute Norse motto, you know, walking backwards into the future. Yeah, we, we, yeah. well, we're all, we're all in a way, we're all seekers in a way that we're all seeking for that one thing that once we have it, ah, bliss. 
you know i mean i mean even people who you know like who get engage in material uh things oh uh i don't know i could give you a rough example you know like uh uh, let me, you know, okay, material things. Okay, I'll, I'll use a, a polite example of video games, for example. You know, you know, like let's say, like, okay, you have someone that's not very religious, and like, oh, I don't need a god, god or any or, or a god to give devotion to. I can just do uh, live an ego, you know, because that's the alternative, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you don't have something you devote yourself, well, there's this, there's the ego, and and uh, and so, but but the thing is, the problem with that every material sense gratification thing so to speak activity has a beginning and an end whereas in, in relation to, in, in in contrast to devotional service it's you're devoting to something that's not material that is eternal in nature and that you know i mean but we're all you know that's why you have so many people that that they're trying this thing or that thing or, oh, they think, oh, if I only had this person in my life, my life would be so much better. Or oh, if I had that one thing or if I had that car, but these, again, these are material things, but you know, it's just, it's just. It's a great method know. to never be satisfied. Yeah. Like the Gita goes into great detail about this, about fighting lust. And the, and the thing is about lust that I, I made a video about this called lust is my foe. It's, it's, it, it was inspired by the Gita that the thing is with lust, Okay, this is a very crude example, but it's a real example that uh, that, uh, that so it's, it's the only way I can uh, illustrate this. That okay, let's say you have a young guy and he sees a woman. You know, he he sees her. Uh, you know, he uses his senses. Okay, I see the woman. Then he thinks about her, and then uh, you know, and then you know, sense perception, and then comes attachment, material attachment. And then when attachment comes, then lust comes, and when lust comes, oh lust this great desire oh i want this i want that person i that's my happiness i gotta have that person and once that comes about then then according to the gita anger comes around oh i can't have this person oh, i'm so angry and then when anger comes uh then then complete delusion comes you know something happens i say something or do something stupid and then afterwards uh, then there's bewilderment of memory confusion oh what just happened i don't know and when uh, and then after that intelligence is lost you know, and and uh, I would say that's the esoteric reason why lust is, is bad because it, it literally degenerates you. You know, it doesn't improve you. It doesn't make you any happier. You're still bound to fear, to attachments, to anger and anxiety. That's why we turn to spirituality to get away from this. You know, but most people they don't know that. They think, oh well, I'm just gonna try this and and then you know uh, trial and error or what have you. I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I think it's definitely a very uh, a Hinduistic approach to to this uh, whole question. But I think that I'm very inspired uh, by Western esotericism, really. You know. Um, yeah. But I'm very inspired by contemporary uh, takes on magic, and so uh, the like. Alistair Crowley has these three schools of magic. For instance. Yeah. So, but what I'm trying to uh, to say here is that you know I'm very sympathetic to what he calls the yellow school of magic, and I don't think he actually considered himself part of the yellow school of magic. I think he considered him part of the the white school of magic. There's a, the, the white, yellow, and black school of magic, and um, the yellow school is the one that kind of rises above and sees and observes the world, 
it sees that there are, the world consists of many different forces uh, that try to dominate each other. But the Yellow School of Magic sees to uh, understand this interplay and see both sides of this cosmic drama, in a sense. And that's what kind of draws me to, uh, to Norse mythology or these uh, pre-Christian worldviews as well, uh, that they have this sort of holistic view of how the world really works. You know, it's not just good versus evil. Uh, that's, that's, that's a lot to take in. I'm, I'm just trying to uh, digest. It's kind of a strange uh, tangent maybe to go, to go into. But. Yeah, yeah, because the thing is, from what I know about Alistair Crowley, that... Uh, oh, he's not even that important to the discussion, really. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, never, okay never, sorry, sorry about that. Okay, yeah, it's just... Well, I mean, in the Vedic view, I mean, it is, as far as good and evil is, is about, I mean, you know, uh, we're going, as a charge, he says we're in a transitional phase right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, going from a uh, like we're in the Kali Yuga, you know, the darkest of ages, and and um, entering into a mini golden age. And according to Charity, that's going to last for like what, uh, ten thousand years. You know, mm-hmm. uh, which is I don't I, I don't I, I don't have a problem with that. Ten thousand years sounds nice. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, I mean, even you have this evil, and you, yes, there is evil out there. But like, well, what can we what can we do? You know, this is an opportune time to, for greatness to uh to accumulate uh transcendental qualities Mm. you know qualities that control the senses that control the mind you know that that uh that that are above uh negligence so to speak like like uh, like this is from thinking now from chapter 16 of the gita uh and like krishna he he lists all these like uh, transcendental qualities like for example or, or divine qualities like for example like cleanliness and simplicity and fearlessness and all these things that you know we, we we can as humans we can i mean we all have these qualities but like but the question is how, how much of a degree do we have but yeah i mean it's it's kind of you know in our duty to do uh what is righteous you know you you know with these good qualities of fearlessness and you know positive auspicious qualities that you know we can you know it's good to have in such a time that we can use discernment to identify okay what is uh well quote unquote evil or wicked or whatnot or mm-hmm. what have you i mean like like now is a time for for heroes to emerge i mean uh you know as krishna says it, um what i find inspirational whatever an action a great man does uh, common men will follow and whatever standard he puts uh, the world will pursue i mean in our own nature in our own nature as known in sanskrit a svadharma that we all have a purpose. We all have uh, unique qualities, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know that should that you know, that should be encouraged and whatnot. And you know, like I never thought I can teach old English in the in the weird way that I do. <laughs> I mean, I never thought of that when I was. Uh, I never thought my channel would be the way it is now. I mean, I'm, I'm and uh, and people tell me, oh wow, Kevin, you're you're an inspiration and whatnot, and uh, hopefully. And that's another thing with my channel too. I mean, not only is it to connect people with their own history linguistically, but it's to inspire um, other people as well to look inward. Oh, what is my old language? Like, I truly want to make our world a better place, a more interesting place, because I hold the view that life is only good as we make it. We have to 
strive to become glorious. Like those heroes of Beowulf, uh, um, Inyeld, uh, name, uh, um, Sigurd, um, and Siegfried, and all these heroes in, or in, the, in, in the East. We got Ram, we, we got uh, Arjuna. We have so many heroes and inspiration and whatnot. But then, then again, you have people that, well, they have a choice. Do they want to live in ego? Me, 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 me. Or do they want to live in humility and devotion of, of you, you, you? Or what can I do for you? How can we work together? Mm-hmm. You know, forget my own concerns. Let's, 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 let's work together. I hope that makes sense of what it said. Those are certainly good ideals to, uh, to uphold and strive for. It's, it's the same thing with the honor economies. You know, what is honor? You know, honor is anything that furthers goodness. Basically, what sort of conduct makes the world a better place? How does it improve my life and the life of those around me? Uh, And of course, honor, you know, gets a bad rap these days because honor uh, honor is uh, seen as this this engine of of dishonor, basically. Like it's this uh, perverted uh, reverse image of it that seems to pervade these days. What I find very interesting about old English and, and old Norse literature is that there's an honesty to this. Of course, because uh, humanity is burdened by these tendencies that it has, the honor system will be subverted by certain, by certain qualities. But you have ideals that represent the way forward. In old Norse, you have the, uh, the ideal of the drengir, or the quality of being drengiligir which is one who furthers their personal honor without trying to step on the toes of other people, which mm-hmm. was uh, probably an art back in the day, given that, uh, that men in particular were supposed to be uh, competitive in the society. Well, yeah, of course. You know, this could be said of all, of, all Indo-European cultures that you know, this, um, this repeated theme of honor you know, and striving to become better than you were yesterday uh you know it's something that i think eternally we you know everyone uh should strive for we need these things and and it's just but the thing is with honor when you talked about it it had like perverted if it were not yeah well that's the product of well modernity that you know if if i were to say to someone i want to be honorable like and people kind of look at me kind of, I mean, sorry, hypothetically, people look at me kind of like awkwardly, go, what are you being dramatic or something? I mean, that, that sounds kind of silly. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, no, I mean, I actually mean that. And, you know, like I'm choosing not to engage in, uh, in into sense gratification. Instead of going out to a party, I, I, you know, I'd rather stay home and, and uh, listen to uh, Vedic philosophy or better myself. And, and so in the future that I can help other people and whatnot. I, I don't know. It's, it's just... I mean, I have dabbled, uh, I mean, a bit since Old Norse and whatnot. But yeah, that's the thing I want, uh, want to bring up too. I mean, someone could have said, hey, Kevin, uh, why haven't you done Old Norse? I mean, you could have been more popular, you know, with, with the show Vikings and all that. No, I chose Old English because I wanted to be true to myself. You know, mm-hmm. I told myself it was Old English. I'm going to stick with Old English. And the thing is, Old Norse is already popular. Uh, and there's Jackson Crawford. I mean, you know, he's a cool guy. I mean, um, where my focus is, yeah, Old English. But then on my second channel, learning old dramatic languages. You know, what about Old High German? What yeah. about Old Saxon? What about Old Frisian? What, and, and Old Dutch? You know, like, I, I don't mind going through uh, grammar books that are not even English. Uh, most of them are in German. 
um, you know, to talk about this stuff because, you know, if everything's Norse, 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 then, it, then it's very, you know, there's more to that. Our world is, is colorful. And, we, and again, like I said, you know, life is only good as we make it. And the thing is with me, I like to bring things that are not well known to be known. Uh, and uh, the, especially with something like Old English and, and the uh, little uh, nuances and, and especially with the second channel of all these other old dramatic languages. And, and I find that if, if anyone listening interested in getting into an old language, my best advice would be not to learn many of them at the same time, rather focus on one, like at least learn one. So when you go, when you dabble in the other ones, it's, oh, well, well, it's like old English. Oh, it's like this. It's like that. Mm -hmm. um, it gets a lot easier because otherwise if you, if you learn one half way and or a quarter way, this to, to one language and a quarter of another language, I mean, you can get an idea, but at this, at the end of the day, they're both different languages. I mean, they both have their own little nuances here and there, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, that's my advice. So, so for those of you listening, you want to get into an old dramatic language, pick one, stick to it, and then dabble in others. I think that that's really good advice. And I totally agree that there's sort of this yeah. uh, over-focus really on the, on kind of the old Norse and the Vikings and that sort of thing. Even Scandinavian medieval uh, stuff doesn't get the attention it deserves. It's kind of overshadowed by this extreme focus on the Viking Age. Uh, the Viking Age is interesting, but I'm actually like, like in the material culture and kind of the, the societal developments, I'm actually more interested in what happened before there. And there's a lot more. It's also a, kind of a bigger mystery. That's maybe some of the alert to it, you know. But, yeah, but, I, but I absolutely agree that there's so much stuff there that needs to be or deserves to be highlighted, you know, and, and get its own little stage. So I think it's really commendable that you have this approach with both, with both of your channels, really. Yeah, I mean, it's just that there's a lot out there that, yeah, that, that is overlooked. And it's just, uh, well, the, the problem is, I mean, I guess with, with Vikings, it's, oh, well, it's cool. Oh, it's it's flashy. Oh, there's this kind of this material sort of consumerist, like, ang I don't know how to word it, like angle to it that people want to capitalize on. Yeah, um, which is unfortunate, you know. Like, how how uh, sincere are people's interests? Is it? it are, do they want to know it for the sake of knowing it, or they do want to know it just for because it's fun? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I think that uh, that you know um, we covered some good ground here. Um, do you have any final words for the listeners? Any advice? Anything you want to say? Uh, well, uh, in relation to, uh, well, with my craft of Old English, uh, should you want to get into Old English or any old language, it requires a lot of patience, uh, requires a lot of effort, but I mean, it may be hard, but, but if you just don't give up, you'll make it, you'll, you'll get through. If you will not fight your battle of life, because in selfishness you are afraid of the battle, your resolution is in vain, nature will compel you, because you are in the bondage of karma, of the forces of your own past life, and that which you, in your delusion, with a good will, do not want to do, unwillingly you shall have to do. Bhagavad Gita, Book 18, Verses 59-60 Mild and brave men live the best, rarely breeding sorrow, 
but the unwise man fears whatever, and the greedy sulk over gifts. Hovomol, stanza 48. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brood Noise Podcast, and a special thank you to those among my listeners who continue to support my Norse ass on patreon.com forward slash Norse, or by buying some of my merchandise in the Teespring store. I'm not going to tell you to do it as an act of devotion yourself, but I have prayed to Krom for your continued support, and if he doesn't listen, then to hell with him. On that note, I have nothing else to say but to wish you all a great day, and keep on hanging on. Hail Oxal.